So much to say about just what we just sang. Grace greater than all our sins. Amen to that. Come to the altar. His arms, they're open wide. You know, today, before I begin, let me just say this. If you don't know Jesus, that's why we're here, okay? It's about the gospel. It's about coming to know him. So, yeah, we're going to preach on Psalms today, but I hope that you hear Jesus. And I hope that, and I'm reminded every Sunday, I need to preach Jesus from wherever I'm preaching from, whether it be Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, it's about him. And his arms are open wide. Come to him. That's the message. So I hope that you hear that today. Um, and don't forget that. His grace, it's available to all. It's greater than our sins. Psalm 39. I just want to read this chapter. So if you have in your Bible, just turn to Psalm 39, and then we'll be kind of dissecting it a little bit more closely as we go through. This is a great chapter. And I want you to hear as I read some of the similar themes from last week, Psalm 38 that I preached last week. You're going to hear themes that have to do with God's hand of discipline being upon David. You're going to hear the the terms, and you're going to hear his heart reaching out and asking God, help me. It's a psalm of individual lament. Lord, I need help here. I'm feeling your hand heavy upon me. And David identifies the issue just in this chapter, just like he did last week. He'll identify it here. It's, it's sin in his life that's causing this. And I want to be very clear. Last week I talked about this. Sin, or excuse me, suffering and sickness are not always the result of our sin, okay? I want to be clear on that. We live in a fallen world. As a result of Adam's sin, we all entered into a broken place that's messed up that's broken, that's fallen. So just by living here in a fallen world, we're gonna be sick, we're gonna suffer. Sometimes we suffer because we're standing up for Jesus in a world that is diametrically opposed to him, right? So if we stand up and our light is shining for him, there's gonna be some suffering there. But I also think it's fair to say, and David brings the two together in these chapters, he says sometimes when we're suffering, it's a result of me, what I have done against God, and so I'm bearing the weight and the consequences, that's really the word, of my own sin, and God is disciplining me. Now, the way God disciplines is as a loving father for our good, for our benefit. Hebrews 12 is very clear on that. It's not punitive, it's corrective. It's to grow and to be a a disciple. That's really the, the root word for discipline is disciple. I want to be more like him. So sometimes that involves discipline, the part I don't like in that process. So he cares for us, but sometimes that discipline is in the form of consequences for my own sin, for what I've done. And so listen as David talks about this in Psalm 39. I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I'll put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So I remain utterly silent, not even saying anything good. But my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. While I meditated, the fire burned. There's that graphic images there. Then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. Wow, there's the prayer. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. 
And if some of your translations over to the right, Selah, I'll talk about what that means. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. Isn't that the story of our culture? Yeah, heaping up wealth and at the end of the day we're not, we're not even sure where it's going to end up when it's all over. But now, Lord, what do I look for? Lord, what is it I'm supposed to be looking for here? There's the question. My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. Again, he's equating the consequences of his sin before God as the cause of all his suffering here, just like last week. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. Again, the hands of God there, the symbolism. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. And in some of your translations over to the right, you might have the word selah. Again, we'll get back to what that means. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, as a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. This psalm combined with last week, this week, and then going through Psalm 41, and we're going to complete, by the way, the book one of Psalms. The week one I mentioned that Psalms, 150 chapters, is combined and organized into five books. So chapters one through 41 is book one, and you'll see that in your Bibles. It usually delineates that. We'll be preaching through the end of book one in Psalms, the collection of Psalms. They all are going to have the same theme, and a lot of scholars believe that they were combined for that reason altogether in a unit to close out book one, this theme of lament over one's sin and the consequences and grief and coming before God. And how do we do that? I think one of the values of Psalms is how do I lament? How do I show emotion to my God? Specifically in the area of grief and sin. There are areas where I don't like to dwell in a lot of times. In fact, I want to get out of that quickly. And I think there's something to be learned in those moments of grief, in those moments of when you're struggling. And that's what the Psalms helps us do, helps us realize there's value to that. Life is short. Is that a fair statement? There's a couple things that help me remember that. One of them is birthdays. And holidays and New Year's especially, it just reminds me how quickly the years go by. It seems like I just celebrated my 57th birthday back in May, and already, you know, I'm heading towards my 58th, and it, it just, it's just this quick cycle, how quickly time goes by. Life is short. And as my title says, life is short, but we need to pray hard. That's where David wants to lead us today. There's a saying, and you might even have it in your home, I saw it. When I grew up in our house, it was there. It says, only one life, you probably heard this, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that's the truth that we're going to see today. So let's look at the first three verses. David's silence in your note taker and up on the screen. Silence. David says, I'm just going to be quiet for a little bit. Look what he says. I'm going to watch my ways. I'm going to keep my tongue from sin. 
I'm going to put a muzzle on my mouth. You know, there are times I wish I would do that more often, but that's another story for another sermon. Well, in the presence of the wicked, so I remained utterly silent. I didn't say anything, even anything good, he says there. But my anguish increased, my heart grew hot. While I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. There was a moment, David says, where I was silent before God. Why? Why this silence? There's a couple of ideas here that David mentions in verse 1 and 2. The first one is maybe because in his state of mind where he currently was, if he were to open his mouth, he might sin. Something might come out that would not be pleasing to God and probably not beneficial to other people. So there's this idea that if I can't say anything nice, I'm just not going to say it. I'm going to shut my mouth. I'm going to muzzle myself. Sometimes when we're in pain, we lash out. Uh, the example to me is if you, I have a hammer and there's a nail and I'm doing construction work, and if I slip and slam my thumb with the hammer, guess what? I'm going to probably lash out. Now, it just, it, it's that immediate response to pain. That's a physical pain. And sometimes when we're in physical pain, we just we say things that aren't kind, we lash out. And maybe that's what David's thinking here. I've got to be careful. The other scene that came immediately to my mind is sometimes you watch TV shows and movies and, and the wife is pregnant, expecting, so the husband's there with her in the hospital and you've seen this, those scenes where she's in pain, childbirth, and the husband's standing next to her and she's, she's in extreme anguish. She's yelling out against him, uh, I'm going to get you for this, you know, I don't like you, and saying all kinds of things. It's like, what's going on? She's lashing out because there's this anguish. Now, I understand that's not always the scene. But in movies, it makes for an interesting plot line, so they go there. But it's this idea that David says, I want to keep silent because I might sin. James, I immediately thought, and your mind probably went there too, to James chapter 3. And there's going to be a couple times where we reference James today, but here's the one. Chapter 3 speaks of the tongue, right? James says in verse 2 and then verses 5 to 6, he says, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Okay? There is no such person. We can't do that. Sometimes our mouth gets out of line, out of control, right? Likewise, the tongue, it's a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is a fire. It's a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. There's that idea that the sin, the, sometimes sin comes up in, when I speak, and David says, I don't want that to happen. He's in pain, he doesn't want to say something that's wrong. But there's another reason that comes up here also that I think is playing in. He says, well, I was in the presence of the wicked, in the second part of verse one there. I think there's a part of David that says, I don't want to say something against God right now because I'm, I'm feeling his hand on me. And I don't want to speak irreverently of my Lord in the moment that I'm feeling right now, so I'm just gonna keep my big mouth shut because my enemies are around me. They might hear something that comes out of my mouth that's disrespectful, dishonoring to my Lord, and I don't want that to take place. So he's making sure that he keeps it all in. In last week, Psalm 38, David was being quiet before his 
his uh, enemies, and they were bringing accusations against him. And I t- spoke last week about how that was a picture of Jesus. Before Pilate, before his accusers, he kept his mouth shut. He was silent in Isaiah 53, verse 7 there. So last week he was silent in front of his enemies. They were bringing accusations. This week it's a little bit more of David's being silent because he doesn't want to dishonor God in his words before his enemies. But David said, I wanted to keep silent. I tried, but guess what happened? My anguish built up inside me. And he uses some word pictures here. My heart grew hot. He says the fire burned. It's this idea that all this was going on, this anguish, this frustration, maybe anger, all of these emotions were just kind of boiling around inside of me. And guess what? Anything that boils eventually boils over. And David said, I couldn't keep my mouth shut anymore. I had to talk. He says, so he says there at the end of verse 3, he says, then I spoke with my tongue. So eventually, I came out of my silent period and I spoke. So what did he do? How did David speak? Well, he did not gossip. He did not slander. We know that. He didn't speak in that direction. He didn't go on Facebook and post his frustration, although he didn't have Facebook, so maybe that was why. He didn't send out a tweet you know, calling down all of his enemies. He didn't go on a face-to-face rant with the individual. What did he do? How did he respond? You know, there's that verse in Ephesians 4, 26. It says, be angry. We're, we're people. We have emotions. It, be, it gives us permission to be angry, okay? Express those emotions, but don't, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. There's things that we need to do to take care of our anger, keep short accounts with it, But don't let that anger boil over into improper ways of expressing it, okay? When we listen to our pain and our suffering, we can discover a lot of things. When we listen to the hurt, the anguish in our hearts, all of those emotions, there's things that can come up. Maybe that this anger, this frustration that I'm feeling is greater than the circumstances justify. Maybe I'm just making a mountain out of a molehill here and I need to bring it down to a little bit more to reality. Maybe it's misdirected. Maybe I should be angry at something else rather than my spouse or something like that. Maybe it's just misdirected. But I want to add this in there. Maybe God wants to talk to me in my pain. C.S. Lewis, maybe the most quotable writer, theologian, author there is. I came across this quote years ago, and it's always been in my head, and I believe it's true. I don't have an overhead of it. I'll just read it to you. I think it comes out of his book, The Problem with Pain, I believe. But here's what he says about pain. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. Quiet. When things are going good. God's still there. He's speaking. He whispers. He speaks to us in our conscience. It's a little more direct. Volume goes up a little bit. And then listen to what he says here. He shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I want to add this. I think it's God's megaphone to get my attention sometimes. He shouts. Ken, pay attention. There's things I want to teach you here. So maybe that's going on. There's things we can learn. James 1.19. You probably know this verse. 
But if you want to shoot that up there, here it is. I use this one often in counseling with young couples going into a marriage relationship. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. And he wants us to do three things. And look where he starts. I want you to be quick to listen. Silent. Be silent. Listen first. Then speak, but be slow to speak. Proverbs speaks a lot about that thinking about what I'm going to say before I say it. Quick to listen, so to speak, and then this one's huge, slow to anger. In relationship, what does anger usually do, right? Not usually good. That's just a fair statement. Learning how to control my anger. Use it maybe for good rather than bad. Because the anger of man, the next verse says, does not achieve the things that God desires in our life. The righteousness of God. That's why. So instead of speaking his concerns to others and getting all hot and bothered and lashing out, he brings his concern to God. He comes in humble prayer. And look what he's going to do. He's going to ask, he's going to listen, and he's going to learn. Look at verses 4 through 6. This is so good here. So now he speaks out, but he's going he's to ask, he's going to listen, he's going to learn. Show me, Lord my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. Wow. That's a profound request by David to God. Show me, Lord, what my life is like. You've made my days a mere handbreadth, the span of my years, nothing before you. Everyone's but a breath, even those who seem secure. Everyone who goes around like a mere phantom, in vain they rush about, they heap up wealth. They don't even know whose it will finally be. Lord, I'm listening. I want you to teach me some things. And then we have David's wise words. Teach us to number our days. Look at Psalm 90:12. if you want to shoot that up there. There's a couple verses that deal with this. Psalm 90:12 It says basically the same thing. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It's speaking about living wisely, numbering our days. Then in Ephesians 5, 16, here's what Paul says in the New Testament. He says we need to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So we live wisely, but we live purposely. We make use of every day that's given to us. Not because life's short in Ephesians, because life days are evil, meaning we're living in an age that is opposed to God. So we need, as Christians, we need to make use of every available moment to share the gospel, to do good, to invest in kingdom purposes because the days are evil. So we need to live wisely, we need to live purposely. There's a Armand Nicolay, he's a psychiatrist. He once said, only when we're ready to die are we really ready to live. And if you think about that, especially from a gospel standpoint, it is profoundly true. If you're not ready for the end of your life with the Lord, we talk about that if you were to die tomorrow, right? Sometimes we ask that question. That's profoundly true, but I think it applies to living this life also and the quality of the life that we live here. If we're, if we're not ready for that, the end of our life, and aware of the brevity of life, then we're not really ready to live this life well, to live wisely, to live on purpose, and things like that. Life is short, so David says, in view of this fact, the brevity of life, 
we need to understand, we need to live it in view of eternity. Verses four and five, he talks about having a proper perspective. The only real meaning in our existence must be in relationship to a God that is eternal. He says, he says, my span of years is nothing before you. He's putting his life and he's giving a perspective. He's putting it in relationship to a God that is eternal. And he says, here I am, but in comparison to you, there's nothing. And he uses a couple words, a hand breath. Basically, I looked this up, what does that mean? It means this right here. At the base of the four fingers, the width of your hand. In their culture, in this time of this writing, this was one of their measurements, and it was a very small measurement. It was depending on your hand. Uh, my hand, not very big. Some of you have big hands. When I, Mike Erlinghauser, it would be a much larger measurement, but it's still relatively insignificant, and that's what he's saying. And then he uses the word breath. It's the same word there that it is in Ecclesiastes. Vanity. Vanity. All is vanity. It's that same word. It's a breath. It's here, today, gone, tomorrow. It's the idea is, however, without God, life is vain. Life under the sun. That's Ecclesiastes. If I take my life and I just live it for the here and now under the sun, that's the way of saying it's just about this life. I have no concept of God, then it's vanity. I Perspective is so important, eternity. James 4, 13 to 16. Going back again to James for the third time. It's amazing how this all ties in. Listen you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? And then he says, what is your life? Question mark. You're a mist. Wow, okay. That's even more insignificant maybe. You're a vapor, depending on your translation. You're a vapor or mist that appears for a little while then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. What James wants us to do is he wants us to live purposely. He wants us to live prayerfully. If it's the Lord's will, I'll do this or that. He doesn't want us to be presumptuous with the Lord. I don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. None of us do, so we live it prayerfully if the Lord wills. That's our statement. We live it in light of him and eternity. Life is short in view of eternity. Life is short in view of death. In verse six, we need to have our proper priorities. It's not just, life is not just insubstantial in length. It's, it's insubstantial in accomplishment and consequence. And he speaks of, in verse six, this idea we're a phantom, this mere phantom. Everybody goes around like that. In vain, they rush about heaping up wealth, knowing whose it will be. What is this phantom idea? The word there is actually image. It's the same, it's similar to the word that's used back in Genesis. God created us in his image, and in his likeness. He created us male and female. He created us. Similar to that, but I think the idea that David wants us to get here, it's like they're living it kind of depend, like idols, like you're depending on images of God, idols, to give you that purpose in life or to put your trust in. And he says, don't, don't do that. It's not good. And one of the idols he mentions in verse 6 there is this money, finances. Don't put your trust in the phantom, the image of something you think can bring you hope. 
but put it in God, who is the real deal, not the image. Death is certain, death can be unexpected. Many of you read The Daily Bread, and I do occasionally, and once in a while they come up with some really cool stories, so I wanted to read this one um, because I thought it applies to unexpectedness sometimes. Death is not only certain, it's also unexpected. You don't know whether you will be alive at this time tomorrow. Sorry, to, you know, that, I don't mean to be a downer here, but let alone on New Year's Day. I read about a Scottish pastor who was burdened for the soul of a businessman who occasionally attended his church. The man readily admitted that he was not born again. Whenever the pastor would try to talk to him about his soul, the man would reply, as long as he was in good health, he would wait. Besides, he was just too busy to think about such matters. So one day, the pastor decided to startle the man into realizing that he couldn't afford to keep dodging the matter of where he would spend eternity. So he walked into the man's office without knocking or calling in advance. When the startled man looked up, the pastor asked abruptly, did you expect me? No, I didn't, the man replied. The pastor then said grimly, what if I had been deaf? Then he spun around and he walked out. The honey question keeps echoing in the ears of the businessman. It demanded an answer. By the end of the day, he trusted Christ as his savior. The illustration worked in a very profound, real way. I love that. Life is unexpected and we don't know what's next in this life. It's uncertain. Verse seven, but now, Lord, you've told me life is frail, it's uncertain. By the way, I forgot to mention, I'll go back to verse five and verse 11, the selah, that's put over to the side and some of your over to the right. A lot of uncertainty is what that word actually means. There's different ideas. Uh, musical interlude is one idea, a pause, a rest, a, a, a time to contemplate probably involves all of the above. It's just, David says, life is short, and I want you to think on this. Let's take a pause right here. So at the end of verse five, we have that pause, and at the end of verse 11, we have that pause. So I think of it in terms of the illustration to me of the uncertainty of life is vacation Bible school out here, we were doing recreation things. One of the things we love to do with the kids is we have sidewalk chalk and you can still see the evidences of their art out there on the parking lot. But the other thing we bring is bubbles, right? Who doesn't love bubbles? Adults, children alike, right? So we have the bubbles, and we blow the bubbles, and it's funny to watch the kids, because bubbles are that way. They're there for a moment, and then you reach out to them, right? And you might even have them on your hand for a second, and then they're gone. And it's that illustration of what, if we're counting on this life, the brevity of our life, it's like a bubble. Boom, gone. And we're ch we chase after so many things, don't we? And they're like bubbles. They just kind of disappear over time. So, so now what, David says, what do I look for? And when I was reading this chapter and thinking about how I wanted to preach it and the things I wanted to bring out, I wish I could just take this sentence. It's right in the middle of the chapter. It is really the heart and soul of everything David wants us to hear this morning. And here's what he says in verse seven, the second part. My hope is in you, period. There it is. Bold that, underline it, whatever you have to do, because we need to realize and understand in our life, where is our hope ultimately? There's a lot of things like those bubbles we can put our hope in that don't last. 
Wealth, already talked about that one. Family, putting our hope in our family and our friends and our relationships. Putting our hopes in things like my popularity. People like me. Politics, wow. Good health. I have good health, so my hope's in that. I'm going to stay healthy, and I'm going to... Successful career accomplishments in this life. Things are going well. Worldly pleasures. You know, there's all these things that we can put our hope in, and all of them just mean nothing at the end. When we were... I meet with a group of pastors, and we were talking about this passage together, and, and one of them said, hope is like... It's like a lighthouse, and we all kind of stopped and went, lighthouse, really? And explain that, what do you mean? What do you mean hope is like a lighthouse? And he, he said, it's like David's out there, he's out there on a boat and the storm is just going on. He's in a, it, the rain, the wind, everything, it's dark, it's scary, it's uncertain. David's in the middle of that, that's Psalm 39. But there's this hope, there's this light that sits up there on a, this beacon that's just guiding him and letting him know, hey, number one, I, it's for safety. That's the main reason for lighthouses. It keeps you from doing things, wrecking your lives against the rocks. But I think it also gives you that hope that things are gonna be okay. The lighthouse is solid. I mean, we still have a lot of these lighthouses around that were built probably beginning of the last century, a lot of them. And they're old and they, they, they last. They're there, they're built, they're solid. This is a picture of God and our hope. We can look to it even in the middle of the storm, okay? It doesn't mean the storm goes away. That's the story here. David's storm is not going away here. He's still in it, but he has hope. He has the lighthouse. He can look to it. And the lighthouse is not going away anytime soon. That's God. He's eternal. He's forever. He's faithful. We can always look to him. It's so good to know that. I look at faith and hope together. They really are similar. Faith is about what's going on here. It's step by step. We, we walk by faith. It's about the journey of this life. We walk trusting God every step we take. That's faith. Hope is about the destination. Hope is a future word that says out there, it's a sure certainty, but it's a future. So it's more about my destination. Faith is the journey. Hope is the destination. And really, they both play off each other and they work together. I need hope now too, but it really has a future element to it. And what David, we see in David's life is that the waves are still splashing up against the ship here. Things are still hard, but he has the hope, um, the lighthouse. He may not understand everything that's going on, and you've probably been in that situation. I don't get it. What in the world is going on? It's just one thing after another, and why? Why, God? It's okay. You know what? Let me, it's okay to ask these questions. God, what's going on? It's lamenting. Bring it to him, because he'll, he'll be there for you. Trust him. He's not going away. But there's times where we've all kind of wondered what in the world is going on? I don't understand, but we can know this. We can know he's there. That's really the message of today. That's the hope that we have. David's prayer, verses 12 and 13. You know, it's always a good place to end, isn't it? When life's hard, 
We can keep our mouths shut, not talk, and that's probably a good thing to do. I need to do more of that and listen. We can, you know, read. We can go to friends. Those are always good. But at the end of the day, coming to the Lord. Look what he does in verse 12 and 13. This is David's prayer. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not, do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. Do you hear in that, this isn't a happy ending just like last week. It isn't, Lord, everything's great and hunky-dory now and everything's been settled and I'm good. It's, Lord, I'm just, I just need you to hear me. I just need to know you're there. I just need to know that you're gonna be around. That's really where he's at right now. And I love these psalms because they leave it there for us. They let us know that it's okay. The first thing we wanna do is fix things. We always wanna fix things quickly. We want short answers and quick answers and easy solutions to everything in our life. And sometimes in life there are no easy answers and solutions. Sometimes we suffer. But, man, there's hope. My hope is in you, Lord. So, first of all, I want to point out the name of God. I did this last week. You know, there were three names last week. There's two names in this chapter, and I breezed over the first one in verse 7, capital L, small o-r-d. From last week, what does that name of God mean? Do you remember? Not, not Yahweh. Adonai, the other one. L-O-R-D, now our Bible translators help us by doing this with, because they're both, they both come in English as Lord, but Adonai is the capital L, master, and then small O-R-D. He's my master, so David says I'm going to trust him as his servant. That's the word that he's using there in verse seven. Now, at the end, and when it's all caps, what is that? That's Yahweh. That is the name that God gave himself, right? With Moses. I am who I am. And I will, it's, it's the eternal God. It is the covenant God. It's the promise-keeping God. It's the one who will always be there for us. Yahweh. So, Lord, I'm looking to you. And look what he asks the Lord. He says, Lord, please listen. I just need you to listen. He talks about, Lord, hear me, listen to my cry. Do not be deaf to my weeping. What happens in your home as a dad or as a husband when someone you love dearly starts to cry? Um, you know, a little baby, a child, your spouse, someone you love, your, you know, you're a good friend that you're having coffee with, they start to cry. What happens? you become very attentive to what's going on and you're aware and you, want, you lean in, right? You listen a little bit more because you want to hear. And, and David's saying, God, I need that right now. I'm dealing with some pretty tough stuff here and I need you. Please listen. And he say, says it in three different ways in verse 12. 
And then he says something very interesting. He says, I dwell with you as a foreigner and a stranger, as all my ancestors were. He says, here's how I feel. This is just David being honest with God and saying, this is how I feel right now. I feel like I'm a foreigner and a stranger to you and to the people of Israel. He's using it in the term of community here. Now, think about who's speaking here. It's David. He is very much Jewish, and he is the king. So why is he saying, I feel like I'm a complete stranger and a foreigner here? He is very much the opposite of that. Sometimes the reality is when we sin, when we are struggling with some of the consequences of our sin, we feel in our hearts, we feel like we're separate from God and separate from my Christian brothers and sisters. Sometimes when there's sin in my life, the last place I wanna be is here, right? Because I feel like people are looking at me like, what's wrong with you? You can't get your act together. What gives you the right to come to church living like you do? Or maybe you just feel like, I, I'm in such shame right now, I, I, I can't even worship, I can't look up. That's how David was, was feeling to God. I wanna turn that around and to let you know this morning that in Christ, those of us who are his, we're very, we are foreigners and aliens, but in a good way. Let me read this passage and I'll explain where I'm going with this. This is out of Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. It's the Hall of Fame. It's, it's that chapter that talks about faith and the examples of people that lived in faith. Listen to what it says, and these words are gonna come up again. Foreigner, stranger. All these people, Paul says, that I've been listing, Abraham, Moses, going way back into the history, all these people were still living by faith when they died. There's that walk of faith. It's, it's that journey. They were walking by faith. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them. They welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers. Same words. On earth. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to go back there, to return. Instead, they're longing for a better country, a heavenly one. That's our story, isn't it? Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Because of Christ, because of what he's done for us, we are foreigners and aliens, but in a very positive way, not in the negative way that Dave was talking about. We're foreigners and aliens. We feel like we're foreigners and aliens here because we know there's something so much better that is eternal, laid up for us, promised to us, by Yahweh, our Lord. So if we are foreigners and strangers, here's some things to think about in a good way. Number one, it's sure that we have a home somewhere. Number two, it's not surprising that we sometimes feel out of place here and we desire to be somewhere else. Does that sound familiar? Number three, we need to treat each other well because we're all foreigners and aliens together and strangers. We need to be treating each other well because we're traveling this together. And number four, we should view life and death in entirely different ways. Life is an opportunity to serve our God, delight in Him. Death 
is simply going home to that place where we belong. So if we are foreigners, if we are strangers, and we are in Christ, but in a good way, because we know we have a promise with him. I love, look at verse 13, and as we look to the communion table, David says, look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. This idea of looking away from him, normally in scripture, when God's face was on you, it was a blessing. Normally, it was what you wanted. You, in fact, you didn't want God to look away from you. That meant, guess what? You're on your own here. Or you're, you're suffering the effects of a curse or something. Something bad is gonna happen when God turns his, away, his face away from you. David's saying, in my situation, because of my sin, he's speaking from that perspective, God, I need you to look away from me and my sin. To me, that's the cross. It's the cross. Christ took our sins to the cross. He took all of them on him so that when we receive him, God can look away from our sin, in a sense. He can look at Christ. He can see us in Christ righteous. It's a beautiful reminder of who we are in Christ. And David's asking, he's pleading for God's grace and mercy. If there's anything we learn today, it's that we need to end there every day saying, God, I need your grace, I need your mercy. Because without that, I'm in a world of hurt here. It's my only hope. As we prepare for communion, we need to remember what sin cost. The life of our Savior the bearing of our sins. We need to remember that we need God's grace and mercy. That's, that's why we do this. It's a reminder that it's not just a one-time thing where I see Jesus and it's over. It's every day. I need grace and mercy in my life. This is a reminder. And thirdly, it's a reminder that God's gonna go to great lengths to provide his grace and mercy. He already has, and he will continue to do that.